Good morning. I'm Pastor Glenn Thomas, Senior Pastor here at St. Paul's Lutheran Church in De Pere, and I welcome you to our Pastor's Bible Class. As is our custom in this class, we will be taking a look at the Scripture lessons that are assigned to us, not for today, but for the following Sunday, so for April 26. It's good to have you with us today, whether you are listening to us on the radio here in the St. Louis area, on KFUO 850 AM, or whether you are joining us online from really anywhere around the world, it's great to have you with us. It's great to come together and to study the Word of God. As you might be imagining, we are not recording this class live with people present, uh, unfortunately. For the foreseeable future, at least, we are pre-recording these classes and making them available on Sunday mornings. So with that, let's begin with a word of prayer. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we come before you today continuing to thank and praise you for the life, death, and resurrection of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior, who indeed has always been your plan and your way to bring salvation to us. We pray that we might continue with your help and your guidance to proclaim that good news to all whom we encounter on a daily basis. Be with us especially today, and may your Holy Spirit guide our study that we might continue to grow in our knowledge and understanding of your word, and especially for how it applies to us as your children. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Today we're going to be looking at, as I mentioned, the lessons, the three lessons that are assigned to us for next Sunday, and those are Acts chapter 2, uh, verse 14, and verses 36 through 41. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 17 through 25, and then Luke chapter 24, verses 13 through 35, the uh, account of the two men on the road to Emmaus on Easter afternoon. So we'll take them in that order and uh, start with Acts chapter 2, verses 14 and 36 through 41. And this actually uh, is a part of the Pentecost uh, lesson, a uh, lesson that will be coming up a little bit later again, although different verses of it. But Pentecost, of course, 50 days after Easter for us today. But actually, its origins go back into the Old Testament. Uh, it is an Old Testament festival, uh, both a harvest festival, and it seems also from the writings of rabbis that it was a festival that also commemorated the giving of the law to Moses and God's people at Mount Sinai. You can, if you are interested, take a look at uh, God instituting this festival back in Leviticus chapter 23, verses 15 through 21. So again, this was 50 days after Easter or 10 days after Christ ascended into heaven. We remember that Christ had promised his disciples that uh, while he was going away, he would send the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, the Helper, uh, to be with them and to guide them in all truth and to testify concerning him, uh, to call to mind those things uh, that he had taught them. And then uh, more closely in the book of Acts, chapter 1, verse 8, we remember that uh, Christ promised right before he ascended uh, his disciples that they would receive power on high when the Holy Spirit comes to them and they would be his witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the age. So um, they, the disciples, um, are gathered in an upper room. We don't know if it uh, 
was just the 12, uh, more restricted 12, or whether it was a larger group, maybe even up to the, the 120. Now, that's a bit problematic um, when we think of the 120 uh, just for space limitations. And where were they? Were they in the upper room, if it was a 12, or were they in uh, temple courts? Uh, when this happened, we just aren't told. But as you recall the story, it's not in our text, but just to give us a little context here, uh, they, the disciples, are together. Uh, suddenly there is a sound of a rushing wind, uh, tongues divided as of fire, appearing as fire, rested on each one of them, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, Luke records that they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now these tongues are other known languages. Uh, they were understandable by those who were in Jerusalem for the Passover festival from other parts of the world. So these, again, were known languages at that time, and they were giving, uh, telling about the mighty works of God in those other known languages. And again, these visitors then were amazed at how these men could be proclaiming the mighty works of God in other known languages. And the implication is, without, of course, having studied those languages or regularly be speaking those languages, uh, the accusation, uh, the explanation that was leveled against uh, the disciples was that they were drunk. Uh, and Peter, of course, refutes that, uh, saying it was only the third hour of the day. So Peter gets up. In response to this event taking place, the Holy Spirit coming in a very extraordinary way, a very extraordinary manifestation of the Spirit, and Peter now uh, is going to deliver a powerful sermon that identifies Jesus as the Messiah, whom they crucified and God raised from the dead. So with that as background, let's take a look first of all um, at verse 14, the first verse in Acts chapter 2 that we have, but Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. So that's his first, uh, you might say, introduction to this lengthy sermon. Uh, we just have uh, a portion of it here in our text. Um, Peter here uh, clearly assumes the role of spokesman for the disciples. And in fact, especially when we think about the first portion of the book of Acts, actually the first uh, uh, 12 chapters of the book of Acts focus on the works of God through Peter and Peter's ministry. And then we get a lot more of Paul from that point forward. But here we have Peter standing up, and this is not, of course, uncharacteristic for Peter uh, to speak first. Uh, he has a penchant for doing that, it seems. Um, now, it says the 11. That uh, uh, maybe gives some credence to the fact that uh, the they that were gathered together uh, were not a large group, not the 120, but maybe the smaller group. But again, that's not, uh, that's not conclusive in and of itself. So Peter uh, stands up. He's going to assume the spokesperson role here and uh, give ear to my words, he says. Now we have a huge jump. We skip all the way to verse 36, 
and see how this is um, more, uh, I guess you would say, appropriate for closer to the Easter uh, time of the Lord's resurrection. Verse 36, let all the house of Israel know, therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Well, we've got a couple of things going on here. First, notice the appointment almost of God. God made him, this Jesus, so it's almost appointing to, to an office. Uh, both Lord, now that word Lord has huge implications because it is equating Jesus with Yahweh, with the God of the Old Testament. And it is saying basically that, that Jesus is God, is divine. And of course, uh, uh, that is a, a huge statement to be made, that he is one and the same with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And, not only Lord, but and Christ, the Anointed One, the Messiah. And notice the contrast here, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, uh, notice the contrast between the way humanity, in this case, treats Christ, and God treats Christ. God the Father treats Christ. You know, uh, uh, sinful humanity crucifies him, and God vindicates Christ by bringing him back from the dead and appointing him both Lord and Christ. And when it says here, you crucified him, we're not thinking perhaps that many of the people there at that point had direct uh, involvement and implication in the crucifixion of Christ. You know, were some of them there uh, shouting crucify him? Were some there taunting him? Uh, we just don't know as he hung on the cross. Uh, again, it was 50 days earlier. It certainly is conceivable that some of them were there. But the you here could probably also be a generic uh, one referring uh, to uh, God's people and the leaders, certainly, of Israel. Now, verse 37, here's the reaction. We're going to see the law doing its work here. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And, P and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what should we do? And so you can see here that Peter's words, especially that last sentence, um, here, just think of what they're thinking here at this point. Christ has come, the Messiah has come, and we crucified him. You know, we, we did the unthinkable. What are we going to do? And so the law here, we see that the law is accusing uh, these people uh, of their sin. It is the, remember the three uses of the law, this is the mirror use of God's word as law that it shows us our sin clearly and without any equivocation. So uh, then Peter uh, says to them, they, they of course realize what they had done, verse 38, Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Well, a lot here to talk about. First of all, repentance. Here's uh, the, the um, uh, uh, imperative to repent, first of all. 
And repentance really is two things, uh, two main aspects to it. The first, and it literally means a change of mind, but it means to, to turn away from something, to do a, a U-turn away from something, in this case, of course, sin. So it's, it's a, a contrition that we feel, a, a sorrow that we feel, an anguish that we feel as a result of our sin, and we turn away from that sin that, and, and confess that sin and, and, and uh, uh, feel in every way that we want not to do that again. But then the second part of repentance is equally important, and that is that we trust the forgiveness that is ours through our Savior, Jesus Christ. One without the other uh, is simply not true repentance. In other words, if we only have the contrition and the wanting to turn away without the forgiveness, that leads to despair. Uh, we think of Judas, for example, uh, totally uh, apparently contrite and in anguish over what he had done, but no real faith in, in that he could be forgiven. Or we think of the other side, of the, the other ditch on the other side of the road, I guess you would say, and that's faith in having your sins forgiven without the contrition, without the sorrow for that sin, without repenting or feeling any sense of sorrow over that sin. It's not an either or, it's a both and. We turn away from sin feeling contrite, feeling sorrow and anguish, and just as importantly, if not more importantly, we have the forgiveness that is ours through faith in Jesus Christ, and we trust in that forgiveness. Then repent, Peter says, and be baptized. Notice that whenever baptism is spoken of, it's spoken of in the passive that, that we are being baptized. And there's a lot to that, but again, we believe that baptism is God's action. It is not our action. It is not our making a confession or a statement of our faith. It is not something that is done by us. It is something that is a work of God. And we'll see what that work of God is here in just a moment. But it is God who is at work doing that which is done and accomplished in baptism. Now notice next, who is to be baptized? Every one of you. In other words, baptism is not to be restricted based on age or race, ethnic background, gender, any other uh, qualifying factor. Every one of you is to be baptized. And of course, we could make a statement here about children and infants. Uh, we as Lutherans and are, are very scriptural in believing that uh, baptism is intended by God for everyone, including infants. So every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. Now, this would be in the name of Jesus Christ, perhaps to distinguish it from the baptism that John the Baptist was doing, which was merely a baptism of repentance, and perhaps to distinguish it from other Jewish washings that were in existence at that time and cleansing ceremonies. This is the baptism of Jesus, namely the one that he instituted in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and when we say in the name of Jesus, we are tying it together with everything that Jesus did and accomplished for us. 
In other words, the forgiveness that comes through his life, death, and resurrection. It's everything Christ accomplished, and it's given to you in and through this baptism by God. Notice now it is this baptism brings to us the forgiveness of your sins, Peter says, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Here is one clear verse, and there are others, that tie baptism, being baptized, to the forgiveness of your sins. Again, that's only possible because God is the one who is doing the work in and through baptism. It is not, again, our work, our profession, our confession. It is God doing his great work, giving us in the water and word of baptism everything that Christ has accomplished for us. And notice, second, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And we believe that those are simultaneous actions. It's not meaning that, well, a few months later, you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's perhaps synonymous with saying something like, when I eat, I will receive nutrition. That's not something that happens days later. It's a simultaneous act. And so here, what a a beautiful verse, although this is not, I think, the main focal point of this section, but uh, as to give a lesson on baptism, but we pick up a lot of our teaching on baptism from these words of Peter. So again, baptism, forgiveness of sins, gift of the Holy Spirit, all given by God who does the work of baptism. Verse 39, for the promise, what promise? Well, the one we just had, the gift of forgiveness of sins and receiving the Holy Spirit is for you and for your children, not excluding any age group here, are we? And for all, notice the universal nature here, for all who are far off. In other words, those who are uh, currently not in a relationship with God, but are far off, are still in their sins. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Another clear statement that it is the Lord who calls people to himself, that the work of salvation is not our work. It is God's work, and he works through means in order to call people to himself and to their salvation. Then verse 40, And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves, or actually we can translate that, be saved, as a passive, from this crooked generation. Why is that generation crooked? Well, it is the generation that rejected the Lord's Messiah, isn't it? It's the generation that crucified the Lord's Messiah. However, uh, boy, this certainly has application uh, in just about every generation, does it not? That as long as Satan prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, as long as we live in a sinful world, and as long as we carry along with us every day that old sinful nature, boy, it is just as accurate to say it today of us that we are in a crooked generation when it comes to God and his will. Seemingly at times, at least in my opinion, some people not even concerned with what God's will is, what sin is, 
uh, having absolutely no guilt for th doing things and saying things and thinking things that are way outside God's parameters for people. And you just hope and pray that God's law will be at work to show them their sin, to show them their need for a Savior, and then, of course, that the good news, that there is forgiveness and everlasting life through Christ, is what is received. And then finally, verse 41, so those who received his word. Now, that probably implies that some did not receive his word. Uh, those who did receive his word were baptized. Again, notice the passive. They were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. A couple of points to make here. First of all, again, it seems to be implied here that some did not receive Peter's word. In other words, they did not um, receive and believe what he was saying about Christ, that he was, in fact, made by God to be Lord and Christ, and uh, did not receive uh, the baptism in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins as he invited them and implored them to do. That's a good lesson for us, that, again, whenever God is working through means, he is, we might say, resistible, rejectable. People can uh, absolutely turn their back and walk away from him. We should not be shocked when we see that happen, even though it is, of course, very disappointing. Jesus experienced the same thing in his ministry when he was face-to-face -face with people, that they rejected him and turned away from him. They would not receive that which he was there to bring to them. But those who did receive it, those through whom the Holy Spirit worked faith through, again, the means, they were added that day to those being saved 3,000 souls. And we see there the incredible growth of the Christian church in those early days. We don't have the time uh, here, but you can run through um, a few more chapters ahead in Acts, and as you go, see how, again, it talks about multitudes being added and, and uh, too, uh, too many almost to, to count being added. This is the, the explosive growth uh, of the Christian church. And again, that's due to the working of God in the hearts and minds of people. The Holy Spirit at work through the Word. Notice again, it is Peter's Word of God here, that Holy Spirit working through that, that calls these people to faith, results in their being baptized, receiving the forgiveness of their sin, and that same Holy Spirit. So what a great reading as we are thinking again of the risen Christ on Easter Sunday, and Peter clearly proclaims him here again as risen Lord and Savior. With that then, let's move to our second assigned reading, and that is from the book of 1 Peter, chapter 1, uh, verses 17 through 25. And again, maybe just a little background here uh, to begin with. Uh, the author, we believe, is the Apostle Peter. Uh, there is some discussion about that, but uh, we believe it is the Apostle Peter. He's writing to Christians in the five provinces of Asia Minor. We think it was about 67 A.D. or maybe a tad earlier, uh, before the real serious persecutions under Nero began, 
uh, in Rome. Uh, it appears that these Christians are undergoing some form of persecution at the time. You can pick that up from different verses in the letter. Uh, they're being slandered, ridiculed. Uh, they're being suspected of being disloyal uh, to the uh, state, which would be, of course, the, the Roman Empire and emperor. And the goal in our section is to point to Christ's redemption, uh, his sacrifice and resurrection, and the impact that has for living life as God's people, especially at that time, and to encourage God's people as they are living in those very challenging times. So let's start with verse uh, 17 here, and again, 1 Peter 1, and read, And if you call on him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Oh, a lot here. Uh, first of all, that phrase, call on him, that it really goes back to an Old Testament Hebrew word that means um, uh, summoning God or speaking God's name in, in prayer, in repentance, or in praise. So if you call on him as Father, and we have to remember that it's only through Christ that we have access to the Father in the first place, only through his life given that we have access to the Father. And Peter says, this Father who judges impartially. Notice there, there is, God does not play favorites. Uh, we, think, we think of Peter um, in Acts 10, that God shows no partiality whatsoever. He is totally just and totally impartial. Now, judging according to each one's deeds. Now, if we're not careful... That almost sounds like a works righteousness, that uh, we are going to uh, uh, be judged uh, or, or score points with God based upon our deeds. Well, remember that the Christian's deeds, so to speak, are seen only through the lens of Christ's righteousness, that there is only the righteousness of Christ that we are clothed in when we are in the sight of the Father, and all of our evil thoughts, words, and deeds have been removed from us. As the psalmist says, as far as the east is from the west, has God removed your sin from you? Or we think of Jeremiah 31, that uh, he will forgive our iniquity and remember our sin no more. And so for the non-Christian, however, and not being clothed in Christ's righteousness, there are only... Um, filthy rags, we might say, their own righteousness with which they stand before the Father. And again, this Father is completely impartial. He is totally just. He judges by exactly what he has said he is going to judge in terms of standards. So as one, as people who call on him, Peter says, conduct yourselves with fear. Now that fear is more of a a uh, reverence or respect, not a terror. Uh, Christians don't live in terror of God, but in reverence, in respect. And uh, interesting language here throughout the time of your exile. Uh, harkens back to God's people, of course, being in exile, in other words, away from their home or their homeland. 
And that is a way, certainly, that Christians can think about our existence here in this world, that in a sense we are in exile at this point, um, away from the nearer presence of our God, awaiting that day uh, when we will be taken uh, home to be with our Lord. Uh, Verse 18, knowing uh, that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Knowing that you were ransomed, uh, indeed we were ransomed, Christ paid for us. To be ransomed is to have someone pay a price for you, to, to purchase or buy you back. And that is exactly what Christ did on the cross, shedding his blood as payment in full for our sin and for all sin and all evil. And the resurrection of our Savior Jesus Christ is proof positive to us that God has accepted that payment as payment in full, that there's nothing more that needs to be done, not by Christ and not by anyone else, certainly not by you or by me. And he says that we were ransomed from the futile ways or the, you might say, ridiculous, uh, uh, vain ways inherited from your forefathers. Well, what might these be? Um, We think of um, pursuing evil desires, maybe other religions, other gods, even uh, for a Jew relying on the rituals of the law and, and upholding all the law. Those were, again, the futile ways that people thought they were uh, being saved. And we were, we were purchased and won uh, by, away from all of that by Christ. And we could say a lot here, couldn't we, about the futile ways that many people are pursuing today, uh, thinking that by following them, uh, they are somehow uh, putting themselves in the good graces of God. Probably most popular amongst those would be you know, living the best life that I possibly can, uh, being as moral a person as I possibly can, being as loving a person as I possibly can, uh, treating others with respect, and so on. Uh, all of those certainly sound good, and I'm certainly not being critical of, of any of those things, but we have to remember we can never be good enough on our own. And in fact, the good news is we don't have to be. We don't have to do what we can't possibly do. Christ has done it all for us. He has redeemed us and ransomed us, as, as Peter reminds us here. And notice here, what were we ransomed with? Not with perishable things, such as gold or silver. So not with things that are going to be done away with, even though they have value here on this earth but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. And you know, all the, all the Old Testament sacrifices come to mind here. All the lambs, the sheep, the goats, the birds that were sacrificed, uh, and all the blood that was spent and shed in all those sacrifices as a result of sin, all pointed ahead to the one perfect sacrifice that the Lamb of God would make and did for us all on Calvary. It was that blood that cleanses us from all sin 
and all unrighteousness. And all of those, another way of, of looking at this is we speak of those sacrifices uh, prior to Christ as being a shadow or a foreshadowing of that one great sacrifice, all-sufficient sacrifice to come. It's sort of like this. If you're standing around a corner from a building and someone is approaching uh, you on the other side of that wall and you see their shadow out in front of them before you actually see them, you can see the outline, you can see the, the shadow of that person, but it's not the real person yet. You don't see them until they finally turn the corner and you are face to face with them. It's the same with all these Old Testament sacrifices that preceded Christ. They were but a shadow of the one sacrifice that was yet to come and finally appeared when Christ went to the cross. It's his precious blood that redeemed us, that ransomed us. He is the lamb without blemish or spot. As John the baptizer said in John 1.29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the completely sinless one in whom there was nothing punishable, nothing blamable, we might say, by the Father. Going on, verse 20, He was this same one, this Lamb of God, Christ. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. What a verse. Before the foundation of the world, this Lamb of God was foreknown. Just proof again that this has always been God's plan of salvation, even before creation. And notice there also, it was made manifest, or it was revealed, it was made known in the last times. Uh, we say that the, as, as Christians, the last times began when Christ walked this earth, and we are still in the last times, so to speak, these latter days. And so it's for our sake that he was made known and was revealed. Prior to Christ, people were saved through faith in the promise of the Messiah to come. Now that he has come, we are saved through faith in him and what he has accomplished for all people. Going on then, uh, we see verse uh, 21, who, who through him are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. So again, it is through him uh, that we are believers in God, and there's a, a good point that uh, the only way to the Father is through the Son. As Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It is through him that we are believers in God. And let's remember that he who does not have the Son does not have the Father either. And so we go on, uh, we see here, and this is kind of, we probably don't have enough time to get into this, but here it attributes the uh, raising of Christ to the Father. Uh, if you look sometime at Romans 8, verse 11, uh, the, the Spirit is attributed uh, to raising uh, the Son. And, uh, you know, you have in, uh, I believe it is John 
10 where Jesus talks about his, maybe it's John 10 or 11, his, uh, he lays down his life of his own authority and he takes it up again. Uh, only he has the authority to, t- to put, put it down and take it up again. Um, destroy this temple, Jesus says, and I will raise it up again on the third day. And so we see throughout the scriptures that really the, the triune God uh, in different verses and sometimes different uh, persons of the triune God are given credit with the resurrection. That's not a problem, certainly. Uh, three persons, one God. Then uh, going on here in verse 22. Oh, I'm sorry, I skipped a section here. Uh, who raised him from the dead in verse 21 and gave him glory. Well, certainly the resurrection manifested the glory of the Son, but certainly we think of his ascension and uh, seated at the right hand of God, Philippians chapter 2, uh, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow both in heaven and on earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is, to, is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so he is seated at that position of power and authority in all of, uh, of the creation, so that your faith and hope are in God. Verse 22, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Well, uh, our souls are only purified through, again, the faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And by our obedience, and that is by believing and doing the word of God, And notice what happens here. We have a sincere brotherly love, first of all. And we have that love, loving each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. That's the word philos in Greek. And then he comes back with another uh, uh, imperative. Uh, That is the Greek word agape, which is spoken of in the scriptures as God's love, type of love for us. It is a Uh, sacrificial, unconditional type of love for one another, and do that earnestly from a pure heart, Peter writes, since you have been born again. And we can't can't really uh, read that phrase without uh, reflecting and thinking back on the conversation Jesus has with Nicodemus in John chapter 3, where Jesus says, unless you are born again, or born from above, uh, born of water and the Spirit. And this, again, is all God's working, as we were saying in the previous lesson. It is all God's work. Not a perishable, he says, but of, not a perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding Word of God. You get that changeless, enduring quality of the Word of God here. It is not something that perishes, but something that is imperishable. It is living. It is the abiding Word of God. And again, the Spirit works through that Word. Here comes another contrast between that which is temporary, that which goes away, and that which lasts. And here, uh, Peter is quoting from Isaiah chapter 40, verses 6 and 8. All flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news 
that was preached to you. What a contrast between the temporary nature of life here on this earth, of our flesh here on this earth, of uh, created things around us, also very temporary and fleeting. Uh, it's just the very nature of what we see around us. And contrast that with the permanency of the word. It does not change in verse 25. And what a blessing that is. Just think for a moment. If we had a God and a word of God that weren't permanent, that were subject to change, uh, we would have no certainty, no peace, uh, no solid confidence in our relationship with God. We would always be wondering, where do I stand now with God? Are his words and promises still as valid as they were when they were recorded a couple thousand years ago? But thanks be to God, that is not the case. We have a God who does not change, and we have a word that is permanent and does not change. So what a great section here in 1 Peter chapter 1. And again, uh, as God's people are under persecution, under um, attack, uh, what a great section for them to read and, and take to heart and take hold of. All right, now let's move into our final lesson. We go to Easter afternoon, and we have two men on the road leaving Jerusalem, walking away from Jerusalem on Easter afternoon, going back. They're going toward a town named Emmaus. We don't know if this was their uh, hometown or whether it was the spot where they simply were going to um, spend the night. Uh, we really uh, don't know for sure. This section, by the way, is unique to the Gospel of Luke. We don't have this in any of the other Gospel accounts. And uh, there's a good bit of irony uh, and even perhaps a little humor uh, as we read through this account. And I'll try to point a couple of those things out to us as we go. So that very day, two of them, two of the disciples, probably disciples um, uh, in, in a larger sense, we're not really sure here. There's one named here, and we'll talk about that in just a minute. But two of them uh, were going to a village named Emmaus. Um, again, perhaps turn, returning if Emmaus was their home. Um, I was privileged uh, two years ago on a trip to the Holy Land uh, to go to a site that uh, we think is uh, Emmaus, and at least the tradition is uh, where these uh, two were headed. Uh, there is a spring of water there, and it is about seven miles from Jerusalem, and there is actually a church built over that uh, spring right now. Uh, you can go there and see it today. And uh, that church, and again, tradition, commemorate that this is where these uh, two men and Jesus uh, ended up. Uh, the spring would have been a natural place for travelers to stop and uh, quench their thirst as they were traveling. So anyway, there are, they are on their road to this place, these two guys, and uh, verse 14, and they were talking with each other. Now that word for talking, talking is kind of a, a very tame translation. It's an animated discussion they're having, a fervent discussion they're having um, about what has transpired, uh, about all these things that had happened, uh, namely... Uh, everything that uh, we recount uh, during Holy Week. Uh, Christ riding into Jerusalem 
triumphant on Palm Sunday, um, arrested uh, on the evening of Monday, Thursday, uh, convicted, crucified, and as we're going to see, the reports of his rising from the dead. So they're in a fervent discussion as they travel along. Verse 15, while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. So Jesus himself comes up while they're walking. And verse 16, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And this might sound a bit strange at first, that God is, in effect, keeping them from recognizing that this really is the risen Christ. And we, you might ask yourself, why in the world would God do that? Well, so that he can have time. Jesus can have time here to do the instructing, the teaching that he is going to do before they would get all excited and that teaching would be all but impossible. It's going to be an incredible uh, Bible class on the road, you might call it, that Jesus is going to give them here. So verse 17, and he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still. In other words, <laughs> that question from Jesus made them, made them so shocked that it, he wouldn't know what they were talking about, that they stood still. They stopped dead in their tracks, so to speak, looking sad, looking down. Then one of them named Cleopas. Now, we, he's only mentioned here this Cleopas. Some identify him as Clopas, who is the brother of Joseph, uh, father, not blood, humanly speaking, of course, of Jesus. Uh, and we really don't know in the end, we have to say. Uh, some scholars think he is one and the same with Clopas, others not. Anyway, Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened in these days? <laughs> Here's a bit of irony and perhaps a bit of humor. Of course, Jesus knows better than anyone exactly what has transpired in these days in Jerusalem. And perhaps another irony here is that Jesus is indeed a visitor, a divine visitor who has come with a mission that he has already completed by this time. So a couple of uh, irony, uh, uh, statement, ironic statements here. Verse 19, and he said to them, what things? So he's kind of playing along here. And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet. Well, yes, more than a prophet, though. But you can see even in this that uh, the teaching and the deeds that Christ did uh, force them, force these two guys to acknowledge that he was at least a prophet, a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. And how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. So you notice who gets the blame here. It is the chief priests and rulers uh, who delivered them up. So they're clearly blaming uh, chief priests, scribes, and by rulers. Um, you know, the, the Roman uh, rulers, I would think, would fall into that as well. Pilate, Herod, uh, and perhaps others. Uh, delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. 
uh, condemned to death, death on a cross, even death on a cross, as Jesus humbled himself and willingly submitted to that death, his passive obedience, we call that, and crucified him. And let's not forget that uh, crucifixion was the method of execution that was reserved for only the worst of the worst. It was a shameful, humiliating uh, way to be executed. Verse 21, But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Well, here's another irony. They had hoped, and, and he, in so saying, they are um, indicating that they don't believe it anymore. He had hoped he was the one to redeem Israel. Well, what they are talking about, of course, is a political redemption, that, uh, that the, uh, Israel would, uh, God's people would return to their former glory days, that the Roman rulers would be cast off and uh, God's people would be free from the oversight of the Romans and the taxes and everything that came along with it with Roman rule, and that they would be in their glory, in their heyday once again. That's what they meant uh, by redeem Israel. We see in, on Palm Sunday when Jesus comes into Jerusalem uh, riding, a, riding a donkey, fulfilling an Old Testament prophecy in so doing, Yet the people are shouting, Hosanna, save us now. And again, uh, more than likely, a political salvation that they are looking for at that time. The irony, of course, is that Jesus did redeem Israel. He paid the price not only for Israel's sins, but for all sin. Uh, purchased not only uh, uh, Israel, redeemed Israel, but the whole world by his death on the cross, his blood shed and his life given. So there's another uh, ironic statement. But now, look at what they're going to say. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happen. So you get the feeling that they're figuring there's just too much time that has gone by. If anything big was going to happen, it would have happened by now. It's now the third day since all these things happened. Uh, which, again, gives us a real good way to uh, place exactly when this is happening. Then they tell Jesus about uh, the, the reports that uh, they no doubt were con very confused about. Verse 22, Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And we know this from the uh, gospel accounts as well, of course. And when they did not find his body... They came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. And again, the message of the angel, he is not here, he is risen. Uh, go back and tell his disciples that they should go to Galilee, and there they will see him just as he said. He's risen just as he said. Um, Verse, uh, no, we have, to, we have to say that uh, women were not trusted uh, as witnesses back at that time. Uh, we may obviously not feel good about that today, but that was simply the way it was back at that time. Uh, so, verse 24, some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. Uh, and that's maybe just to make a point that an empty tomb in and of itself is not good news. In fact, it, it leads probably to more questions 
and anxieties, um, certainly more than seeing the risen Christ. And he, Jesus now is going to, Jesus is going to uh, uh, give them this, this rolling Bible class on the road here. Verse 25, and he, Jesus, said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart. Uh, foolish is when you have the evidence, you have the information right in front of you and you still make a wrong decision or you still draw a wrong conclusion. Foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, uh, which certainly includes not only that a Messiah would come, that he would also have to be a suffering servant. Think of Isaiah 53, for example. So believe all that the prophets have spoken. They were all too ready to believe some, but not all. 26, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Yes, it was unfortunately necessary that he did. And again, we think of Isaiah 53. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquity. Upon him was the chastisement that makes us whole, and by his stripes we are healed. Verse 27, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. What a, a verse that, again, gives so, so strong, such strong support to the fact that Christ runs throughout the Old Testament, all the way from the first promise of a Savior in Genesis 3.15, not long after Adam and Eve have sinned, all the way through the Old Testament. You think of the promise to Abraham in Genesis 12 that through him, all nations of the earth will be blessed. And, of course, it's through that one descendant of Abraham, Jesus Christ, that that comes true. Think of Deuteronomy 18.15, that you know Moses saying, God will send you a prophet like me. To him you shall listen. And we could go on and on with passage after passage, especially I mentioned the book of Isaiah. So many passages that point ahead. You would have, I, we would all love to be on the road right here listening to Christ open up the scriptures and expose, expound, expound the scriptures uh, to these two guys. What a Bible class it must have been. Verse 28, so they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going for, uh, farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. Notice they're exercising hospitality here. Uh, these words of Jesus on the road must have really endeared him to them. Maybe they were hoping he would continue uh, teaching them uh, throughout the night. So he, Jesus accepts the invitation. He went in to stay with them. And notice now Jesus is going to take over. He is a guest, but he takes over responsibilities as a host. He took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized it, and he vanished from their sight. There's been a lot written as to whether this is indeed the Lord's Supper that he was practicing here. I think it's fair to say that most scholars come down on the side that it was not the formal Lord's Supper that he had instituted on Maundy Thursday, but it was certainly reminiscent of it. And they could, in the breaking of the bread then, um, recognize him, and notice God opens their eyes just as clearly as in verse 16. He had uh, closed their eyes and, and kept them from recognizing him. Now just the opposite. 
and verse 32, they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road? You know, you just get that burning in your heart as you're seeing new things, uh, learning new things, new applications to the scriptures and how they appointed to the suffering and saving Messiah. While he opened to us the scriptures, verse 33, their reaction now, they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. That's, a, again, remember, about a seven-mile uh, trip they took back, and they found the 11. Now, the 11 is probably just a technical or a generic way of referring to the group of disciples. Probably in number it was 10 at this point in terms of the uh, narrower group of the disciples. Of course, Judas is not there and Thomas uh, was not there on Easter evening, uh, to the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together, and saying, the Lord has indeed, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Of course, that's Peter. Uh, we don't have this appearance described or its account anywhere in the Gospels, um, but Paul does refer to it also in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 4, and the big catalog of post-resurrection appearances he has there of Christ. He says he appeared also to Cephas. Um, then, verse 35, then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. So that's the end of this great gospel account, again, of Easter afternoon. Uh, just a couple of things. First of all, notice the expectations they had for Jesus um, you think of what expectations do people today, even some Christians have of Jesus, uh, are they accurate? And where do we go to find where our expectations should be accurate? Exactly where Jesus went with them, the very word of God, uh, opening up the scriptures, uh, revealing the truth about the Messiah. So I hope that these uh, lessons are a blessing to you. Uh, both as we have uh, gone through them here and especially also as you hear them read and proclaimed next Sunday in our church services uh, throughout the world. Till that time, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his favor upon you and give you peace. Amen. <laughs>